0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the program... Britain's peer-to-peer lender funding circle is going public. We hear from the CEO and co-founder.
1: Financial services businesses uniquely are really about trust. And, you know, being a public company, we believe will increase trust in our platform.
0: In just 10 years, smartphones have risen to be large parts of several countries' economies. What happens when people stop buying new ones?
2: This is a system that, were a a big trade dispute or or problem to emerge, is actually quite fragile. And that's something to worry about. And I think also probably something all of the companies involved are wrestling with and, and thinking about.
0: First, we turn to Argentina, which is in the full throes of a currency crisis. Its peso has lost roughly half its value this year. That pushes up inflation, it means that the country has had to raise interest rates, that makes it harder for it to repay its debts. All in all, a really nasty situation for the government. Mauricio Macri, the president, has turned to the IMF, which had already arranged a bailout, and asked it to give Argentina money faster. Simon Cox, our Emerging Markets Editor, is on the line from Hong Kong. Simon, it's a job that you have to be used to crises coming along every now and then. And right now, Argentina and Turkey are rivaling each other for the bigger crisis. Who's ahead at the moment in that race?
3: Argentina. It's quite interesting. I think earlier in the year... Troubles in Argentina spilled over to other emerging markets. They helped to sour sentiment in other parts of the world. But I think in the last few weeks, uh, troubles in Turkey have spilled over to Argentina and it's been uh, the victim of, of that same kind of contagion.
0: And Argentina right now is trying to arrange at the IMF to disperse more of the loan that the IMF had said offer it offer offered.
3: Yes, that's right. So earlier in the year, Argentina's government decided to turn to the IMF quite promptly. It was quite early in its uh, troubles, and it won a a very generous bailout, uh, $50 billion, of which $15 billion was paid out up front. But the rest was supposed to be paid out in quarterly installments. And uh, last week, Mauricio Macri, the president, went on YouTube to say that uh, they would like these payments to be dolled out a bit faster because they've got a bit of a cash
0: crunch coming up. Por eso quiero anunciarles que hemos acordado con el Fondo Monetario Internacional adelantar todos los fondos necesarios para garantizar el cumplimiento del programa financiero del año próximo.
3: This YouTube video became a little bit notorious. Uh, He implied that the IMF had already agreed to do this. In fact, uh, the IMF hadn't formally agreed yet. It was more just in discussions to do it. When this was discovered by the financial markets, the reaction was really quite violent.
0: And they've hiked interest rates to an astonishing 60%. I mean, that sounds like it's reached the point where people won't even believe that that can stick.
3: Yes. So they raised interest rates by 15 percentage points uh, to 60%. And uh, like you say, there comes a point when, in trying to be credible, you become incredible. And uh, they have said that they'll they'll commit to this high interest rate policy at least for a a couple of months. But it's going to do great damage to the economy. And one wonders if if rates are now so high that they're doing more harm than good. There's quite a long history to this in emerging markets of attempts to defend the currency through very high interest rates. And uh, at some point, I think you reach uh, diminishing returns. I think the central bank feels that it needs to signal to the world, to investors, that it puts great weight on inflation, it puts great weight on price stability, and that it's willing to damage growth in order to achieve that end. So a rate hike like this, it's more of a communication tool more than anything else. But communication tools can be treacherous. And to some people, it's signaled panic, not perseverance.
0: I think if I were President Erdogan of Turkey I might be looking and saying you know people are always telling me that I have unorthodox economic policies but look at Argentina that's been trying to signal the most orthodox policy possible you know when you see your currency fall and you see inflation high you hike interest rates and actually it's Argentina that's suffering more.
3: Yes it's very interesting that they've taken really rather opposite approaches to the troubles that have emerged since about April, and both the currencies sort of chasing each other down. In fact, uh, the Argentine peso is doing even worse uh, than the lira. I think it's worth recognising that Argentina started in a worse position. The economy that, that Macri inherited from the Kirshners was a very distorted economy. So in some ways, you know, the fiscal deficit wasn't that bad, Oh, there wasn't that much debt, but that was because they were using the central bank to finance uh, the fiscal deficit. Uh, In some ways, the trade deficit wasn't that bad under the previous regime, but that was because they had controls on imports and foreign exchange. And in some ways, inflation didn't look that bad because they fiddled with the statistics and they also had price controls. So when uh, the current government, the Macri government, removed some of those controls, changed some of those um, manipulations, removed some of those distortions, suddenly was revealed the the underlying weakness of the economy. And so it started with a very overvalued exchange rate, a bad fiscal deficit, and a very stubborn and and high inflation that has taken a long while to get to grips with. So it's not a good place uh, to start.
0: And next year, there's an election. So there's not much time to try to get everything back stabilised and um, keep credibility while keeping the people on side.
3: Yeah, it's an extremely difficult circle to square. And you know, one hopes that, I think, the, the fiscal programme, they'll agree with the IMF. Uh, in fact, they're putting together a new fiscal programme, even as we speak, and uh, it'll be uh, tougher, tighter. But one hopes it won't damage the, the poorer sections of society too much. There has been a commitment, both both the IMF and uh, the Argentine government, to try and protect social spending on the poorest. Now, whether that will be enough to uh, maintain the electoral viability of the Macri government, I don't know. There are two things uh, working against each other. One is that people will remember the mismanagement of the previous government, and they won't want to go back to that. But on the other hand, it isn't that long ago that Argentina had a a recession. When Macri first came in, the economy slowed down. And back then, people said, well, this is the sacrifice we have to pay in order to put the economy back on track to come back to the people and say, well, you know, you're having to go through a second uh, recession uh, in order to put the economy back on track. Uh, You wonder how uh, deep the reserves of goodwill really are.
0: Thanks very much, Simon.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Next, Funding Circle, a fintech company, plans to raise £300 million by listing on the stock market in London. The listing is expected to value the peer-to-peer lender at more than £1.5 billion. The firm, which was founded in London in 2010, offers loans to small businesses in America, Germany and the Netherlands, as well as in Britain. Christer Koskalo, our finance correspondent, spoke to Samir Desai, the chief executive and co-founder of Funding Circle. He asked Mr Desai why he wanted to go public now.
1: We're looking to raise additional funds and um, potentially take our business public to actually um, continue that fast growth. Um, and really expand awareness and the profile of the business. If you look at Funding Circle, we've always been a very transparent business. We've always put the returns on the loans on our platform, on our website. Um, and at the end of the day, financial services businesses uniquely are really about trust. You know, if, you go, if we all go to the bank tomorrow and try and take out our money, there isn't enough money in the bank to, to give it to us because they've lent it on mortgages and things like that. So the entire system is sustained by trust and being a public company we believe will increase trust in our platform, it will allow us to increase our profile. Um, One of the biggest things we're trying to do is is build awareness, we're spending millions of pounds on building awareness amongst small businesses and investors Um, An IPO allows you to do that um, not, not quite for free. Um, but probably at a cheaper cost than um, than some of the other things we're doing and look I mean we we are growing up in very unique times um, where um, businesses have been able to raise large amounts in the private markets and stay private for a long time that's a pretty unprecedented situation it's only really happened in the last decade um, businesses like Amazon went public when they were only three years old um, similar with um, you know some of the other larger technology companies that were a bit older than the current generation so, you know i always thought great companies go public uh we want funding circle to be a great company there'll be ups and downs and and we're not being naive about it but we believe that for our specific business model this fintech business model um being a public company is is a good thing
4: your business as with others is is also buffeted by external factors and and as a london-based fintech you know clearly one of the biggest potential hurdles is, is Brexit. So I was wondering, you know, how much do you worry about Brexit? There are obviously many angles to Brexit. You you surely have at least some EU staff. There's, you know, passporting issues or regulatory issues given you consider Germany and the Netherlands to be among your core markets, as you said earlier. How much do you worry about Brexit, you know, for, for yourselves and and for London's thriving fintech scene?
1: If you look at our business, um, it is significantly bigger than when the Brexit vote took place in June 2016. Um, I think it's over 171% as large in terms of loan volume. We don't benefit from passporting. Um, There is typically local regulation in each of our markets. So we comply with local regulation in the UK, local regulation in Germany, local regulation in the Netherlands. So, uh, you know, we we, we didn't get any benefit from from that that kind of structure. And what you typically find in times like this is that banks really curtail lending. They pull back. They're very pro-cyclical. So we do believe it's an opportunity for Funding Circle to really... Um, expand our market share at a time when uh, banks will, you know, typically pull back um, pretty wholesale. Clearly, um, access to talent is one of the areas that London and and other fintechs have been talking about a lot. You know, as one of the largest fintechs in Europe, um, we are able to attract a disproportionate level of talent. A fair portion of uh, our technology staff and other staff are from um, from Europe, but. You know, equally, um, you know, the government has been making very positive noises about access to talent for technology companies. They announced a technology visa scheme recently. So we don't know exactly what will happen, but what we do know is that London is a big city; that there is um, a lot of talent that we can access. And frankly, we have operations in uh, Berlin, in Amsterdam, and other areas. So you know we feel pretty confident we can access talent wherever it is
4: another thing that you know critics tend to say about peer to peer lending as an industry is is that it's still so young that it hasn't really weathered a recession and and some people say you know oh one the loan defaults actually you know skyrocket up for macroeconomic reasons and the peer to peer lending model won't won't hold up. What's what's your take on that?
1: We haven't been through a recession as a business, but you know, we've hired a team of hundreds of people that are looking at risk management and data analytics. My chief risk officer was the chief risk officer of Barclaycard. Um, and manage that portfolio through the recession globally, so it's a £40 billion portfolio. And we regularly run the same stress tests that banks run on our portfolio. What we found is that in a downturn, you know, um, the loss rates on the loans on the platform are currently around 2 to 3% a year. In a downturn, we would expect those loss rates to double. But actually, the gross yield that we're charging is about 10%. So even if loss rates doubled, um, investors would
4: still get a positive return. Samir Desai, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Krista, thank you. If you have any thoughts on anything we've discussed today, please email us at radio at com or tweet us at Economist Radio. Finally, the global supply chain where millions of workers at hundreds of interlinked firms in dozens of countries Together, we'll make 1.5 billion smartphones this year. That's all under threat. Patrick Fowles, our Schumpeter columnist, is here in the studio to tell me why. Patrick?
2: Well, that's right. On the anniversary, of the 10th anniversary of the Lehman failure, we're looking around for things which are systemically important and too big to fail. And actually, one of them, in a strange way, could be this enormous complex for, for making smartphones that spans the world involves vast numbers of workers especially in Asia and it's interesting the IMF's recently done some work to try and quantify just how economically important this massive industry has become and surprise surprise it's huge it's it's about five percent of global GDP and in a large number of countries it accounts for a big chunk of exports so 33 percent of exports from Taiwan 15 percent from South Korea 11 percent from Malaysia and so on.
0: Okay so it's too big to fail but why would it fail?
2: Well, there are two big threats. One is simply that after 10 years of very rapid growth, the first iPhone was introduced in 2007, smartphones have stopped growing, so it's, it's got to saturation point. The other risk is is simply trade wars. This is one of the most globally interconnected um, industry trading systems there are. So if you start with volume growth, it just means that for hundreds of suppliers, suddenly the pie Uh, has stopped growing in terms of the number of phones. Now, what we've done is dig a bit more deeply into this. And in fact, it turns out that there's still some growth there because phones are getting more complex. So the number of bits inside your smartphone is going up. And there are also services and apps that people now buy from their phones, which create some growth in the ecosystem. So some companies are benefiting, but nonetheless, there's a very big tail of firms that make components and assemble phones particularly in Asia, where it looks like the growth has run out.
0: Okay, so it's important and it's under threat. But what are the systemic risks? I mean, you've said that it's very large parts of various economies and very important to trade. But would we feel the knock-on in totally different industries that don't seem to be connected to it at the moment?
2: I think if you looked at the risks, uh, that principally, if you were running an Asian economy right now, you might be quite worried about this. I mean, they're very uh, employment-centric firms, and they also alter the balance of payments of a lot of countries. And I think the real issue or the question to ask is, what would happen if there was a sudden trade shock? You know, for example, uh, there was some kind of American ban on components, as there was with this firm called ZTE a few months ago, or a big pile of tariffs imposed on part of the the system which suddenly ground everything to a halt. And again, what we've done is look at that long tail of relatively weak suppliers and try and work out how long they've got before they'd run out of money. And the answer is, you know, somewhere between three and six months. So this is a system that were a a big trade dispute or or problem to emerge is actually quite fragile. And that's that's something to worry about. And I think also probably something all of the companies involved are wrestling with and, and thinking about.
0: Earlier, I talked to Simon Cox about Turkey and Argentina, which are both really looking fragile at the moment for completely different reasons – where else should our listeners be worrying about?
2: Well, from the smartphone point of view, China's clearly the place where almost all phones are still assembled. And there, you know, it's it's one bit of a giant equation, but it still involves millions of workers in China. And I, I'm sure the Chinese government would be seriously worried about the employment consequences of the big shock to the system. And then you have all of the countries surrounding China. Um, Vietnam, for example, has become a very big production hub for Samsung. So we're not predicting some sudden meltdown in this system. But it is interesting that it's really quite vulnerable to uh, some kind of trade shock. And what will be interesting Uh, to see over the next year is how the big companies involved try and reconfigure these chains to make them less vulnerable.
0: And so what sort of things do they need to do?
2: Well, what's happened so far over the last three or four years is some countries have moved production out of China for a variety of reasons. So Samsung has shifted a lot of stuff from China to Vietnam, for example. My, My guess is that over time, the companies will try and make sure they run kind of national silos. So more of the uh, assembly and manufacturing and intellectual property sit in individual countries and therefore they can show each government to China and America and so on that somehow the distribution of the rewards from this massive industry are, are fairly placed around the world.
0: Thanks Patrick. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. We'd like to hear your thoughts on our podcasts. Please go to radio.economist.com slash survey. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist.